welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin, an editor and producer at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that is free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. And I'm Natalie Kirby, Digital Content Associate at Data and Society. Data and Society is a research institute that studies the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. You can learn about our work at datasociety.net. This is the third season of our podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, I invite you to subscribe to Public Books 101 in your podcast feed and listen back to season one, which was about the internet, and season two, which was about the novel in the 21st century. This season, we're excited to partner with Data and Society to explore the past, present, and future of human life being quantified as data. Natalie will be your host this season, so I'll let her take it from here. And thanks for listening. In this season, Becoming Data, my guests and I are considering a few main guiding questions. How long has human life been quantified as data, and in what contexts? What are some major implications of humans being quantified or measured as data? How are people pushing back against the datification of human life, work, health, and citizenship, among other things? If you have thoughts about this episode, you can tweet at us at Data Society or at Public Books. You can follow both organizations on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. Today, my guests are Sarita Amrute and Emiliano Trere. We'll be discussing racial capitalism, the ways that data-centric systems perpetuate it, and how different communities have resisted this datification. Much of our conversation is grounded in the Global South, which Sarita and Emiliano each define for us in this episode. All right, let's get into today's conversation about data and racial capitalism. All right, so thank you so much for joining us today. If you could say your name and tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you do, that would be great. So Sarita, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Natalie. Good morning. My name is Sarita Amrute. I'm an anthropologist. I work at the University of Washington as an associate professor, and I'm also director of research at the Data and Society Research Institute. Great. How about you, Emiliano? Hi, all. My name is Emiliano Trere. And I'm a senior lecturer in media colleges and social transformation at Cardiff University and the co-director of uh, Data Justice Lab, based at the School of Journalism, Media and Culture at the same institution. Great. Thank you. So this is a podcast series about data. And so I'd like to start with the question, what is data? And this is something we've been asking in each of our episodes. And I think it's, it's really interesting to see how everyone answers the question. So, Emiliano, why don't you go first? Well, that's an interesting question and a question that my students ask a lot. And I always start with the definition from Kitchen that I like a lot. I like his work a lot and, and, and it's really clear. So, it's uh, material produced by a process of abstraction from the word which make in two categories, measures or other kind of representational forms that constitute the building blocks from which information and knowledge are created. So 
and data does not they, they do not exist but data emerge through this process of abstraction so and and, and another author i like to to quote when when talking about data is lisa gentleman uh, about uh, uh, raw data being an oxymoron uh, the fact that raw data does not exist there's no such things as data in the real world it's always something that needs to be extracted interpreted abstracted from so i think that this definition sums pretty well what uh, what data is and uh, especially if we refer that from the transformation of human life into data which is i think something that interested both of us yeah, could you give us an example of one of those abstractions? Well, anything data data in relation to people uh, uh, in a hospital, data in relation to students uh, in a university, data in relation to data that I have just uh, been collecting from from my interviews as instrument of data collection, and then I need to interpret those data. Those data are not there. I just do a research, uh, I interview people, I extract this data, and then uh, data are produced around people. Then I analyze those data and establish patterns, and, uh, uh, and I make inferences based on those data. I, make, uh, I interpret those data. They weren't there before. There's always this process of uh, making data mean something for somebody under a particular circumstance. So there's always a, a kind of intention beyond it. Yeah, I think you hit on an important point there is it's it's also about who's collecting the data, right? And that's something we talk about in one of our, our other episodes. So Sarita, for you, how do you define what data is? Thanks. Um, I really like the way Emiliano was pulling on the threads of abstraction and also the point from Gittleman that raw data is an oxymoron. Because for me, uh, especially in the current moment, I really think of data as a performative, by which I mean uh, when you call something data and your audience or the public culture in general accepts it as data, then it becomes data. Um, so a performative is actually a term from linguistics or linguistic anthropology. And the classic example from the work of a scholar called Austin is the phrase, I now pronounce you man and wife. Right? That actually does something in the world, but only when the person saying that phrase is authorized to marry people. And I think pronouncing something data has that similar effect when someone who's authorized to pronounce something as uh a body of information that can be used to make claims in the world, then it becomes data. And of course, uh, those practices are undergirded by practices of collection, classification, and deployment that are, that other people are always at pains to point out, um, that this is, this is how it's being made. So I think data of data as a performative, but then to historicize how we got to this current moment in which, uh, most of the time when people say data, they mean quantification, things that are just that things that are represented numerically, really at its base. I think, uh, for me, and this is something I point out in my, in my classes, we have to go to these twin moments of colonization and capitalism 
with the attendant history of enslavement that that came with both of those. Because in fact, um, historically, if we look back, it was the appropriation of land, uh, keeping statistics about enslaved people, and also dividing colonized people into categories that could be governed. Those are the three sources of this real obsession with quantified uh, data and its archives. Um, and one of one of the articles that I really like best on this is Arjun Upadurai's Number in the Colonial Imagination, um, in which he shows that enumeration really became an obsession of British colonial officials um, in order to prove that they were doing their job to people back in London, so their own governors back in London. So once again, it has this kind of performative aspect to it. Um, something else that I've been thinking about lately is a kind of data fetishism, the way in which our, in our current moment, um, there is a belief in the power of the data abstracted away from um, the social processes that actually went into producing it. So I think those are the, you know, those are some of the ways that we can approach data just to build on what Emiliano was saying. Thank you. I think that's really helpful to contextualize it historically, right? And it's data has always been about power, I feel like is kind of what you're saying there. So this episode is specifically focused on data and racial capitalism. And Sarita, I think your answer kind of leads us really nicely into this next question. So Sarita, can you tell us when you're talking about racial capitalism, what are you describing? And then can you contextualize it with an example um, from your book on Indian IT workers in Berlin? Yeah, so so racial capitalism is a term found in the scholarship of a thinker named Cedric Robinson. And um, this term is really important because uh, what Robinson was trying to do was really, really fundamental in the sense that he was trying to show that race and capital have been entwined from the start. You can't really think about capitalism without thinking about processes of racialization and uh, racial exploitation. The reason it was so important for him to say that is within the Marxist tradition in which he was writing, most thinkers thought of racism as uh, something that came later, something that we could call epiphenomenal, which really just means coming after the real problem or the crux of the argument, a kind of an additional wrinkle in the problem of labor exploitation. And what Robinson was trying to do was to actually reverse that. He was trying to say that race and racialization predates the advent of industrial capitalism, even within Europe. And so therefore, when capitalism arises through the expropriation of land, the creation of a proletariat, uh, the creation of a new system of value that values people's lives in terms of their labor power, all of that of necessity incorporated race and racialization into how it unfolded. And of course, those processes got intensified through the historical experience of industrial slavery and everything that flows out of that. So really at its base, racial capitalism means you cannot think about capitalism without at the same time thinking about race. That's what it means. 
So in my work, I really focus on the global programming industry and how race functions within that. So going back, you know, at least a decade, we were all, in a sense, living under this, maybe not all of us, some of us were living under this false assumption that digital technologies would would actually solve or move away from the problem of race and racism because uh, of this bizarre assumption that if people were communicating through the transfer of digital packets of communication, those communications would be free of all the prejudices that had come before. And a, a lot of the impetus from my book was to show that and make a strong argument for the fact that all of the stuff that seems virtual, that seems immaterial, is it's completely embodied. It's materialized in wires and connections and silicon chips, but it's also materialized in the bodies of people doing the work. And that very basic fact, if you, if you begin with that presumption, again, just like Robinson did, you have to take race into consideration in your analysis because that labor stack uh, within programming economies is thoroughly racialized race and also gender ethnicity are the ways in which people are people's labor are valued and organized even within this economy that seemed to be so free of these earlier modes of division and exploitation so what i found in my book when i was doing my research is that for indian programmers they occupy this really important seminal one could say but conflicted and ambivalent position they were you know as marx would say sort of the light infantry of capital moving from site to site around the world where they were doing uh their programming work and they were mostly at that time working in what we call back-end jobs that is not client-facing jobs and paid less their jobs are always tied to their visa status so when the visa expired they would be moved back to India or moved on to another site in the global economy. And all of the way in which their labor was undervalued or devalued was always justified through racial categories, such as Indians' supposed love of abstract labor, their ascetic qualities that they could work for long hours without break. And at the same time, they became a resource for understanding cultural difference, which made them valuable in this in a kind of post-racial multicultural imaginary that was really regnant. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. So Emiliano, can you give us an example of how racial capitalism shows up in your work on social movements? Well, uh, it connects, I think, to the what Sarita just so fascinatingly portrayed, but in a different in a different way, it it, be, it become evident, and I think it's not just me, but it's a wave of new scholars researching digital activism, that uh, somehow we need to understand power, uh, the fight and the struggle of digital activism, not as just digital activism and social movement activists on one side against this big power materialized, somehow reified on the other, like black or white categories, like this sort of maniche opposite sides. But instead, we also need to look within digital activism practices themselves, looking at inequalities, looking at barriers, looking at tension within digital activism practices and social movements. And this implies looking at issues of 
uh, class, infrastructure, ideology, and race. So what are the barriers that prevent many activists to use these technologies effectively to even access them? And what are the problems, the drawbacks that, that they face? And it it became evident when I was starting to to study, well, I studied different movements in Mexico, the movement for peace and, uh, and justice and dignity uh, that fought against uh, a narco-trafficking industry and uh, uh, the Yo Soy 132, which means I am 132 movement, which is more a student movement that then uh, become a kind of a symbol of media democratization against the the biases of the mainstream media in Mexico and other tech collectives around the country that fight against uh, injustices and, and so on and so forth. So it became evident that, for example, indigenous people and, and, and activists with indigenous backgrounds were the ones whose possibility to engage in uh, uh, digital activism was problematic to say the least, and uh, the consequences of carrying out digital activism were not equally distributed, were not equally lived with uh, indigenous people especially, but also other kind of marginalized groups were being heavily racialized, uh, oppressed, especially uh, for their race and for, for the gender, as Sarita was also saying, and, uh, and uh, they were particularly vulnerable to injustices, problems, violence of authority, repression, uh, and often displaced and marginalized. So I guess it shows really in the way we approach digital activism, not as some kind of unique block, not as some kind of like, we got two kind of powers from above and from uh, below, top down, uh, bottom up. No, it's not like that. It's much more complex than this. And class, race, gender, all these issues, disability, they are what uh, make digital activism what it is. So the next thing I want to talk to you both about is theories of the global south, because I think both of you engage with these in your work. And I think the way that you define them also kind of pushes us out of this binary of like south north, um, which Emiliano, I feel like also just came up in your work where it's not like power up here no power down here, but it's much more complex and, and maybe shifted on its side, right? So I'd, I'd be interested to he hear about how you define the global South. I know you kind of push back against this geographic notion of it. Um, in my work and, uh, and uh, in my work, especially with the Big Data from the South initiative, which I established with Stefania Milan from the University of Amsterdam four years ago, we have a more flexible, kind of expensive I'd say plural definition of the South. This is why we always adopt the S at the end. So it's South. There are many South, this plural thing. So the thing is that we cast the South as, as a place and a proxy for alterity, resistance, subversion, and creativity, innovation also. So this is to kind of embrace the dynamism, the multiplicity of interpretation that's somehow going, as you were saying, beyond this just geopolitical denomination, to expand it. So there are countless South 
also in what we will say it's the West of the global North. And increasingly so, discrimination, resistance against injustices and oppression, fight for better life condition against data capitalism, racial capitalism. So with this definition of the Souths, uh, we think that we can engage in this kind of exercise of uh, disaggregating the geographical dimension. So it's less about like where it's taking place, but the actions that are taking place and how people are resisting. It's really interesting. So Sarita, how about for you? Um, you kind of understand the global South as a method, as relational um, so what does that mean? And, and why is it important to consider the global South when we're thinking about racial capitalism? Uh, yeah, Natalia, I really like this question you posed, a really smart question, because I think this is where some differences that, that come from maybe a disciplinary position as well as uh, histories of embodiment of the authors really come into play because, you know, I, I was kind of with you, Emiliano, uh, most of the way, but not fully in part because of what Emiliano, what you said in the last answer about the need to de-romanticize. And to me, I also feel this very strong need to de-romanticize the South. So, you know, I also begin my lineage of thinking about the global South from Gramsci's essay on the Southern question, but I read that essay as pointing out that the South needs to be thought of as a relation. And I move through Edward Glissant and uh, the work particularly of Jean and John Comroff to, to get there, because for me, the importance of thinking through the global South is really a question of reversing optics. So rather than looking at any problem and the problem on the table before us right now is something to do with data and algorithmic systems, rather than looking at that problem from what we often think of as the hegemonic, meaning dominant sites of its production, what does this field look like when we look, as Emiliano said, from the margins? And when I do that, I see a very complex field that's not only about resistance. Resistance is a part of it, but it's also about creating other kinds of centers of power, uh, forms of oppression and desire. And to me, the, the reason why that's so important to do is because we really can only get a diagnosis of the the harms, the dangers, the, as Emiliano said before, the uneven landscape of risk when we begin our analysis from those positions. So just to tell you a little story to, to flesh this out in my current work, which is um, it, you kind of kind of build on Emiliano's scholarship, looking at activism. I'm looking currently at the the social, emotional, affective, but also material infrastructures that activists are currently currently building around the world. And what's become really clear in the communities I'm working with is how uh, differentially risk is distributed. So um, in a recent case, just to flesh this out, there was an activist named Disha Ravi who was arrested in India for sharing a social media toolkit uh, or for working on, actually for editing a social media toolkit. And the, the reason she was arrested is because Greta Thunberg tweeted this toolkit, right? And then a bunch of right-wing actors um, tried to do some digital diagnosis on the toolkit. They did some digital sleuthing 
and realized that it was created on a Google document that was public out of Vancouver, British Columbia. And this activist, among others, there were two others, was uh, editing it in public mode, right? So here, this is a really, to me, this is a really good case of why the lens of the global South is really key. Because you have a case in which something produced in Vancouver, in Canada, right, uh, shared by a globally known activist, edited by somebody sitting in India on an open Google Doc, and Google, the company, cooperating with the Delhi police, giving the Delhi police the IP addresses of the people who are working on that document, that person is arrested, Uh, And unless you're thinking from the position of people located outside uh, hegemonic regions of power, you cannot recognize the risk that those people are taking when they do something like edit a social media toolkit in in the support of a protest movement on the ground. So that's what I'm trying to do with the term. I'm trying to use it to get us to reverse the lens of analysis. Sometimes it's very useful as a term of solidarity to bring people together around common cause. But I think it's really important in my own work, especially coming out of India, to recognize the forms of caste oppression against indigenous communities in India, Adivasi communities, that are also comprised by this term or within the term global south to de-romanticize it. The the way it connects with racial capitalism is really complicated. For me, it does two things. One, um, it helps us to get out of a overly simplistic black-white binary when it comes to thinking about race. This is true as soon as you go past the U.S.-Mexican border, for sure, but also within the United States and Canada, within North America. And two, it allows us to start doing the work of thinking through cognate terms. So for instance, what is the relationship I think we can pose between something like an abolitionist movement in the U.S. and what Bedgar in India called for as the annihilation of caste? And there's kind of a growing literature trying to once again, this is an old idea, but once again, think about caste and race in the same frame in Isabel Wilkerson's work or Siraj Yengde's work. So that's to me why the the term Global South is so interesting to think through. Yeah, thank you both for that. Um, I think that sets us up nicely for our next question um, about data colonialism. Right. So I think that's a term that we often hear, especially with regards to the global south. Um, and while colonialism and racial capitalism are inherently tied up together, right, in the exploitation of people's labor, both of you have pushed back against the term data colonialism. So, Sarita, can you give us an example of data colonialism and then kind of explain to us why you find the term limiting and what you might propose as an alternative? Yeah, so I I have tremendous respect for uh for people like Nick Caldry who are using the term to describe a field of study. I think it's very useful in that way. But I can't give you an example of data colonialism because it's not just one thing. And also, Natalie, in the setup to the the question, um, you know, linking data colonialism to the global south is also very problematic because it kind of assumes that 
processes of extraction, of the devaluation of labor, of classification, categorization, and especially violence are not happening in places like the United States when we know they absolutely are. So I I thought a lot of it uh, about this. I don't really have an alternative frame. I think the frame is great if we want to describe a field of study, but I don't think it's very useful to to analyze things. And instead, I think we need to go to you know, terms that have been around in the study of colonialism for a very long time. Um, data orientalism or ornamentalism might be interesting to think about. Um, terms like surveillance or data valence to describe specific processes. So I, I think that the problem is it often uh, it becomes a term that only gets applied outside of the so-called West or the North or it only gets applied to processes of extraction. But there's so much else going on in the relationality of things. Um, so we, only, we also have to talk about complex forms of desire. We have to talk about forms of labor stratification. All of that goes into what is often called data colonialism. And back to the very top of our discussion when we were defining what data is, um, the point to me about pointing out the performativity of data is also to raise this question of who gets to do data. Um, and so for me, we also have to think about forms of counter data uh, that communities are producing in order to make their own claims. But of course, keeping in mind that those claims are being made within a field that values certain things as uh, legitimate forms of data. A core component of both of your work is examining how different people resist capitalist systems that are perhaps mediated through technology or they're using technology as the tool of resistance, right? And so, Emiliano, can you give us an example of resistance in your work? What strategies, like I know you talk about disconnection a lot, do people employ? And like, what exactly are they resisting? We live in a kind of... A algorithmic condition because they're all around us and they make a lot of decision uh, and uh, that affect our everyday life. So now I have this understanding of the pervasiveness of algorithm. But before, I, when I entered this kind of the study of, of resistance in relation to algorithms, I witnessed this in activism when I was in Mexico. And it was 10 years ago when I started to look well before... Uh, we started to, th to think about it also in the U.S. kind of context with Trump and the election. I started to look uh, at how social movements on one side were adopting them as a repertoire in their tactics. So, for example, knowing when to uh, game or appropriate a particular uh, uh, hashtag and knowing that the algorithm of Twitter work in a way, of course, 10 years ago, it worked in a particular way. Now it's different, but the activists, uh, of course, are sensitive, are, 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 are cleverer than following these kind of changes and are adapting their tactics accordingly. So I started to, to see that m much of activism, because much of activism has moved to the realm of social media platform, is determined and is 
configured and reconfigure within algorithmic environments and alliances between people, it means the activists, and the algorithms that govern and shape these platforms. And this means a continuous dance <laughs> between algorithms uh, on one side, let's say non-human actors, if, if we want to use a kind of STS, ANT, uh, lexicon um, and uh, and human actors on the other side. So these dance uh, represent for me one of the most defining and most interesting kind of element of today's uh, digital activism that I call algorithmic activism with acts of algorithmic resistance that uh, uh, activists need to perform in order to play this game for visibility in, in, in order to maintain their narrative, uh, uh, of course, to penetrate the mainstream media agenda and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and after Mexico, I started to look at what is probably until now one of the most powerful movement in using this, these tactics, which is the 15M movement, the so-called Indignados movement in Spain. They were incredibly good uh, at using and domesticating the algorithms of Twitter with this novelty pushing the their hashtag to be trending topics for so many weeks, so many months, knowing that it needed to be new, knowing that it needed to be something that uh, uh, drove the narrative of the movement, knowing that it needed to be tweeted simultaneously. And in my work, in my ethnography with them, I look at how they acquire what can be thought as an uh, algorithmic awareness of how the platforms work. These are all kind of folk theories, <laughs> ways that uh, we imagine how the affordances, you know, the, the way the platforms work, and we make the most out of what we know to push the agenda of the movement, to push the visibility, to push the narratives, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and after that, I think that um, I have witnessed this kind of uh, um, activism escalating to a lot of platforms with many, many sophisticated kind of tactics. I'm thinking about TikTok um, and I'm thinking about new platforms where also Black Lives Matter works the way uh, Instagram, uh, where they embed particular kind of uh, information in slides to do kind of slides activism and cre creativity of activists knows no uh, limit uh, and, and they adapt to new platforms. But this kind of uh, concern and this kind of preoccupation with how the algorithm work and it's trying to understand how to use it to your own advantage for your own needs, I guess this is at the center. This connection from, from social media and this connection refusal and all these other vocabulary that has somehow erupted in last years point instead to a kind of refusal abandoning these platforms, or at least temporarily or forever, in order to exercise some kind of agency, in order to exercise some kind of power to fight back. And my point, briefly, is that 
there's a problem with this narrative is that most of the times the people that are kind of disconnecting uh, in these kind of detox apps or going to detox retreats, uh, you name it, uh, are actually people that are privileged enough to uh, take a, a, a kind of disconnective holiday or a break or whatever because of their position in society. Usually middle-aged uh, kind of um, white people that uh, are working in the tech industry that take these breaks and then say, okay, I'm I've disconnected. I'm an I'm a new kind of person. I can go back to produce for the system in in a kind of more motivated kind of way. And I think this is a a dangerous way to frame disconnection as empowering, whereas this is actually a privilege. And in my work during first the first lockdowns that I did last year, I saw actually that disconnection and is stratified and traversed by so many inequalities and divides and privileges that make for some people impossible to disconnect. So the point is that we're not only witnessing a digital divide now that, or different kind of digital divides that still exist and persist, but at the same time, we have what some of my interviewees called the impossibility to disconnect because gig workers and other people, especially the people that I interviewed in Brazil, in Colombia and Mexico, they couldn't take a break because they are tied to the algorithm. They are tied to the app. They're tied to the smart devices and they cannot for their own survival disconnect. So disconnection is really more complex than that. And if we want to resist it, we need to resist especially, and we, we need to come back to what we were discussing and also Sarita was pointing out before, labor, racialized condition of when, you know, these kind of people work, different kind of uh, precarious jobs, conditions, and so on and so forth. So that's for me, it's a way of flipping disconnection and turning it to make realize to, to people and scholars that actually we need to push for a, a different kind of understanding of disconnection and a different kind of resistance to disconnection in our data-fied society. Yeah, that really reminds me of this op-ed that two former data and society researchers wrote for Wired when there was this Fourth Amendment case being heard by the Supreme Court about whether police can search cell phone data, cell phone lo like location data that's captured by your phone. And the argument was like, well, you know, you're voluntarily giving up your data to a cell phone company. And Julia and Andrew's argument was, well, no, it's no longer voluntary, right? Like people's livelihoods are tied to their phones. And so, so actually police should not be able to just take their location data. So Sarita, I guess same question to you. I'd really like you to bring us back to your original example of IT workers in Berlin, because in your book, you have this really interesting point where you talk about how workers kind of develop a special relationship to the code that they write. And I'm curious if you see that as an act of resistance, and if so, why is it an act of resistance? Yeah, thanks for that. I'm very, very uh, always intrigued by materiality and, and the tools, the material tools that can come in so many forms that people use to make sense of and act on their own lives. So when I was doing my work, I, I began to notice that a lot of these 
you know, short-term migrant coders would use their work practices of, you know, writing code, cutting code, debugging to comment on the condition that they were living in. So one thing I found is that they were often commenting on the way that code is ideologically designed to move across borders. Even if it's proprietary, it moves within a company. But at the same time, they were always stopped at all borders and, you know, essentially sent back or sent on. And out of that critique grew a practice of doing things that would make them less replaceable, including doing things that really went against the logic and the stricture and ideologies of being a good coder, such as, you know, leaving really bad and hard to interpret comments so that the next person really couldn't understand what they were doing and they could stay on to their contract for a long time or longer time. But this is, of course, a really double-edged sword. If you don't comply to what it what people think you should be doing as a back-end replaceable coder, then uh, you will, of course, individually, but also as a group, because these processes are also always racialized, um, not not be employable or be replaced by another location or another group of people. So for me, this is definitely a form of resistance, but it's not necessarily politicized. It's still within the frame of an individual or group ideology that emphasizes middle-class status. You know, it doesn't really critique any of the larger structures in, in or the larger political economy in which all this takes place. So it's a, it's really a, a tempered or maybe minor form of resistance. And one of the other questions that really drives me is to think about what those forms of pushing against everyday structures, where they can lead. And that's why I'm also very interested in things that are outside uh, what Emiliano calls the algorithmic condition, not entirely, but maybe adjacent to it, sites of pleasure that don't necessarily hook into a, a strict uh, purpose of monetary gain or establishing a middle or upper middle class lifestyle or, or all, all those usual markers of individual success. And I'm very interested in them because I think they do offer an alternative imaginary of what life could look like. But again, they are every day. They aren't organized into a political movement, except in the moments when they do get organized that way. So one of the things that I, that's really driving my work forward in the current moment is how do you know, people like the people I studied for my first book, fairly successful immigrants from South Asia, how do they turn their critique or their nascent critique of the political economies that uh, make their work possible, but also limit them? How do they turn those two toward other directions? And again, what I'm finding is a lot of that work happens through through thinking adjacent to the algorithmic condition. And of course, ironically, a lot of that thinking is happening through social media platforms. So again, I completely agree with Miliano. They're, they're for, for so many of us, they have, they've become a necessity and, um, and turning off is often, you know, really only understood as a kind of failure. But at the same time, 
what people share, right? Often we, we get so obsessed with the platform. Are they sharing on Twitter or Instagram or Clubhouse or whatever the newest thing is? What people share is also really, really important and how they talk about what they're sharing creates these moments of collective effervescence, which is a very old term from Durkheim, but I think really useful because it describes what happens when people get together, when they assemble um, in spaces together and produce a sense of shared identity. Um, And, you know, for progressive movements, for activists in particular, the way that they share stories about what happened to them, scenes of discrimination or share stories or do learning clubs together, all of that creates some other form that is nascent and imperfect and, and always shot through with contradictions and forms of oppression, but nevertheless is moving toward imagining a world that isn't only bounded by our performance as measured by an algorithmic imaginary. And so I I think that's really important. And I think we need to recognize those everyday moments of, as I call them in my book, counterconduct, something opposed to the way we usually conduct our lives, to recognize them as the seeds of uh, more formalized activist politics. Yeah, I think that's actually a really lovely way to end this conversation right, is kind of bring us back to the idea that there is, there is life outside of our algorithmic world. And that's our series. A huge thank you to Sarita Enrute and Emiliano Trere for sharing their thoughts about data and racial capitalism. You can find links to their work in the show notes to this episode. Please rate and review the show and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Data Society or at Public Books. If you have thoughts about this podcast, feel free to share them on Twitter and tag us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. We want to thank you so much for giving us your time and attention throughout this season. If you're just tuning in for the first time, feel free to explore earlier episodes from the season. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can tweet at us by tagging at Data Society or at Public Books. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this season left you with some new ways to think about your own relationship to data and sparked your imagination as to what a more equitable and just future could look like. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by Annie Galvin and edited by Annie Galvin and Shelby Lohr with editorial input from Kelly Dean McKinney and Mona Sloan. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton, and our logo was designed by Yichi Liu. Special thanks to Data and Society Director of Research, Sarita Amrute, and Director of Creative Strategy, Sam Hines, and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time.